How do you view yourself? I mean, when you have a picture of yourself, what do you picture? What words would you use to describe yourself to somebody else? Maybe you view yourself as a problem solver or an idea generator. Maybe you see yourself as being task-oriented. Uh, maybe you'd say you were caring or maybe you'd say you're impatient. Uh, my next door neighbor used to say that his last name was Italian for difficult to please. But it wasn't really true, but that's sort of how he saw himself. Uh, maybe you see yourself as not very gifted or as being this close to losing it. We all see ourselves in certain ways. And some of the ways that we see ourselves are healthy and other times they're not. One of the hardest things for us to believe is something different about ourselves. I mean, maybe a new opportunity comes up and you look at that and you go, oh, I could never do that. Or somebody confronts you about something and you're like, I'm not really that difficult, am I? It's hard to see ourselves differently than how we picture ourselves. And sometimes though, we long for a different identity. H have you ever noticed that when you're around your family of origin, you know, the people that you grow up, you grew up with, that you tend to slide back into old roles and assumptions. I mean, even if you all left home five or 50 years ago, you all get back together again, and it's just like you were in your teens. And all of a sudden, you're like, that was how I was in high school. I haven't been like that in years. Or others of you, maybe you're in high school, and you're stuck with the reputation for being a certain way, and you're like, I'm really not like that. Or maybe, you want to change jobs or move so that you can get a fresh start or have a new identity. We all have an identity and sometimes it's accurate and sometimes it's old and sometimes we just wish that it was different. Last week we learned that the most unlikely people, people with the wrong identity, are included in the kingdom of God. People who mourn, people who are oppressed, people who long for things to be made right, the overlooked, the failures, the gospel and God's grace comes to people like that. We learned that the Beatitudes are a restating of the gospel. They talk about the change that comes in people's lives when they encounter the kingdom of God in Jesus. And today we're gonna to go further with those thoughts in the Sermon on the Mount. I just wanna make a couple of points about the Sermon on the Mount. First, here's a really cool picture of me reading the Sermon on the Mount on the Mount of Beatitudes. Just wanted you to have a sense of what it looks like. Second, this is a sermon. That's why it's called the Sermon on the Mount, not random sayings of Jesus on the Mount. Which means that there is a linear progression. The sermon builds, there's a point to it. And one section is logically connected to another. But we don't usually read it like that. We read it like it's just a collection of pithy sayings of Jesus. I'm currently reading this great book called Excellent Advice for Living, and it's a collection of excellent advice. And here are some of my favorites. When someone tells you what ticks them off, they're telling you what makes them tick. Collecting things benefits you only if you display your collection prominently and share it in joy with others. The opposite of this is hoarding. Uh, I've actually sent that to several people. Or this. You can't reason someone out of a notion that they didn't reason themselves into. None of those are connected. So I try to read a page or two a day because you just whip right through it. But they're just these little bits of wisdom. That's not what the Sermon on the Mount is. It is wisdom, but it's not just a collection of good advice for living your best life. So it's important for us to see how the sections are connected. 
So now that you know those things, listen to how this might be connected to the Beatitudes, which we talked about last week. Starting in Matthew 5, verse 13. You are the salt of the earth, but if the salt loses its saltiness, how can it be made salty again? It's no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled underfoot. You are the light of the world. A town built on a hill cannot be hidden. Neither do people light a lamp and put it under a bowl. Instead, they put it on its stand, and it gives light to everyone in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others, that they may see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I tell you, until heaven and earth disappear, not the smallest letter, not the least stroke of a pen, will by any means disappear from the law until everything is accomplished. Therefore, anyone who sets aside one of the least of these commands and teaches, teaches others accordingly will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever practices and teaches these commands will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, you will certainly not enter the kingdom of heaven. So the first thing that I want us to notice is, who is Jesus talking to? So he gives the Beatitudes to the multitudes, to the large crowds of people that have been following it around. And then I guess that after he gives the Beatitudes, I thought that he just sent everybody else home and he's just sitting there with his 12 disciples and then he gets down to business and says, okay dudes, here's the really important stuff that not everyone is ready for. But that's not what happens. And that's what changes how we interpret what Jesus is talking about, and it changes how, how we apply what Jesus is talking about. So who is he talking to? Well, he's still talking to the multitudes, that huge crowd that had been following around. And you know how I know that? It's because the sermon ends in chapter 7, and the, the line that comes after Jesus finishes talking is in Matthew 7, 28, and it says, when Jesus had finished saying these things, the crowds were amazed at his teaching. So all the people are still there. He looks out over this sea of people who just recently were outcasts and overlooked and unimportant. He looks out over those people and says, you folks are the salt of the earth. You all are the light of the world. That's crazy on so many levels. But if you think about it, grace more often than not is crazy. It makes no sense. You last week were a bunch of broken and hurting people with not much to offer. This week, you've met Jesus and everything has changed. Then, and this is all grace too, he gives them this new identity. Last week, you didn't have much to offer. This week, you're the light of the world. You're the salt of the earth. And he says this to regular, ordinary people, the last, the lost, the least, to you and to me. You're the light of the world. You're the salt of the earth. They never expected anyone to say that to them. They never expected anyone to believe that of them. So this is all about new identity that we have in the kingdom of God. So it changes the interpretation. It's not the super spiritual who are the salt of the earth and the light of the world. It's not the ultra gifted. It's not the inner circle. He says this to people nobody would ever accuse of being a saint. He says it to normal people who've been changed by grace. It's all the people whose lives have been changed by Jesus, whether great or small, they're the light of the world. 
It also changes the application. Jesus looks out at this ragtag bunch and says, you're the salt of the earth, you're the light of the world. And I just imagine them turning to one another going, us? And Jesus going, yeah, you. I mean, we talk about us believing in God, and here's an example of God believing in us, maybe more than we believe in ourselves. Us? But I'm nothing special. That's what most of us would say. I can't teach a Bible study. I can't lead somebody to Christ. I can't change the world. I'm just me. I'm nothing special. Oh, but you're wrong. You are someone special to the people around you. You're a game changer in your context. Where you are, there won't be salt and light unless you're it. Your kid doesn't know that you don't have a cool bone in your body. They just know you're their dad, you're their mom, you're special to them. You're not just the receptionist at the office, you're the light of the world there. You're not just a member of the faculty, you're the salt of the earth at the university. You're not just one of a thousand students at your high school, you're the salt, you're the light. And if you don't think one person can make a difference or change a culture, have you ever met a bureaucrat who's only empowered and delights to say no? What if you were the person helping and saying yes? I, I see this all the time with people who are living on the margins. They deal with, with a lot of people in authority who say no because it's too much trouble to say yes. What if you were there and because of your love for Jesus were the person that was saying yes? One person makes an enormous difference if you see yourself as someone whose identity has been changed by Jesus. If you see yourself placed in your context by Jesus to make a difference in the lives of the people that you're going to come into contact with. You're the salt of the earth. You are the light of the world. So what does salt and light do? Well, salt makes stuff taste good. You need salt to live. There's lots of things and applications that are possible. But here's what I think Jesus is really getting at in saying this. Salt preserves things from decay. In a time of no refrigeration, it keeps stuff from rotting. And I think that's what Jesus is talking about. Our culture can't stop itself from going bad. It's just the way of the world, from the decline and fall of the Roman Empire to every other civilization that's been on the face of the planet. Things decay, and our culture can't stop itself from going bad. Only salt introduced from the outside can do that. Jesus is reminding us that the church, us, we're the salt to stop the decay in the lives of the people around us. So you're just there in your life circumstance. You're out on the little league field, you're at work, you're at happy hour, you're at the rotary club, you're at the place that you volunteer, you're just out there doing your thing. And every place where you do your thing, you're there to help stop people's lives from decaying. You're there to introduce life instead of death. You're there to help people see that there can be hope, that you can have peace. We're creating goodness everywhere we go because we bring the life of the kingdom with us and that creates goodness. Now, you don't need a megaphone to do this. You can just be the colleague who brings words of hope and encouragement to other people. Sometimes just giving wise, solid advice 
will set you out from the crowd. There is an awful lot of terrible advice out there. Just being the person in the office who genuinely cares, that makes a difference. And maybe it'll also help you if you stop thinking about evangelism because evangelism makes us nervous. It raises too many questions. Maybe think instead of the fruit of the Spirit. You go to wherever it is that you go and you bring along with you love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and goodness and faithfulness and gentleness and self-control. Bring those things to work with you or to your family gathering or to your friend group and that will be a deal changer. And don't do it because it's your evangelism strategy. Do it because you love Jesus and you've experienced grace in your life and you love people and you want them to have the hope that you have. Bring the fruit of the Spirit with you and that will help you be salt. You start doing these things and people will start wondering why you're different. They'll ask you questions. You won't have to worry about it. And then Jesus says, but if the salt loses its saltiness, how can it be made salty again? It's almost nonsensical because salt can't lose its saltiness. Salt is physically incapable of not being salty. Now, if you've done a Bible study on the passage, yes, he might be talking about gypsum. There's all sorts of other things he might be talking about, but I think that's a distraction. I think what Jesus is saying is it's unthinkable for salt to become unsalty. In the same way, it's unthinkable that people who have received the grace and mercy of God would not live into their new identity. He continues, it's no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled underfoot. Now that's really harsh. We only like it when Jesus says, nice thing. But salt that's lost its saltiness is useless. Christians who still call themselves Jesus followers, who aren't really Jesus followers, do more harm than good. They're useless. I think that's the force of it. What Jesus is saying to his followers, to the people who can't believe that he's saying this to them is, remember that you have a new identity in me. Don't stop being salt. So what does light do? Well, it's like salt has several different properties and characteristics. Life dry, light drives out the darkness. I think that's what Jesus is getting at. It also helps you see where you're going. That's why he said it's like being a city on a hill where if you are out traveling and you know in this day and age there were no headlights, there were no street lights, they were just out there in the dark and if you saw a city, the light in the distance, you knew where to head. It shows you where to go. The world is a dark place with little or no light of its own. There's a lot of darkness out there. And there are a lot of people who have lost their way. You're called to be the light of the world where you are, to reflect the reality of the presence of Jesus with people. We bring the light of Jesus everywhere we go. And how do we do this? Well, I think we primarily doing it, do it through loving people, not through anger, by caring for people, not by alienating them. When you think about being a light, you're a reflection of Jesus. And in every situation where you may encounter darkness, what would Jesus' response be? I think we have to remember that when we're confronted with darkness, when we're confronted with decay, when we're confronted with social issues and election choices, that the church is always about hope and healing and restoration and renewal and good news, right? Because that's what the kingdom of God is like. 
Then just like with salt, Jesus has a couple more things to say about light. Neither do people light a lamp and put it under a bowl. Instead, they put it on its stand and it gives light to everyone in the house. So of course, he's not talking about a lamp like you have at your house. He's talking about an oil lamp that has a container with oil. There's a wick in one end. And in order for it to cast a light, you put it up on something so it can be seen. It's unimaginable that you would light a lamp and then put it underneath something. It defeats the purpose. Why did you bother lighting it in the first place? It's supposed to show light, not have its light hidden. So it's unimaginable that you would carry the light of Christ with you and hide that and not let it shine. Once again, Jesus is saying, remember who you are. You're the light of the world. Don't lose your identity. Be who you're created to be. And then Jesus moves on and he talks about the law which seems odd because it seems like this non sequitur. I mean, how does this follow Jesus? You are the light of the world, you are the salt of the earth. I'm not here to abolish the law, I'm, I'm here to fulfill it. Well, the last verse gives us a bit of a clue. In the same way, let your light shine before others that they may see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven. Light shows things. What does it show about you? Is it showing your good deeds that are because you are living in the kingdom or is it showing something else? And Jesus is also connecting being salt and light with action. And this is why Jesus begins to talk about the law. Don't think that I've come to abolish the law and the prophets. I've not come to abolish them, but fulfill them. And then he goes on to talk about the law needing to be done and the law being good. And I think the reason that he says this is because he's looking at all these people saying, you've just received enormous amounts of grace. Your lives have potentially been changed for forever. You're given a new identity and a new purpose and new significance, all because of grace. So what's the temptation? The temptation is to believe it doesn't matter what I do. Or the temptation is to think I don't have to do anything because God has given me his grace. Now, salvation is by grace through faith, not by works lest anyone should boast. But it is not, praise the Lord, for grace. Now I can just do whatever I want. I don't have to do anything. Yeah, salvation is by grace. But walking with Jesus, just by definition, requires work. The evidence that we're Jesus followers is that our lives are characterized by being good people. That people can see evidence of the presence of God, of life change in us. I was listening to an interview with a producer of one of the major reality TV shows, which I do not watch, but I'm not judging that anybody does. And as he was responding to the in interviewer, I was so taken because he said, these shows are liberating and empowering because they show people who've taken control of their lives and they're doing what they want to do. And I thought, well, that's one take on it. Because when I've seen them primarily, it's selfish people doing selfish things. People who don't care a thing about anyone or anything else except getting what they want. And I would observe that the more this is what I want is your filter, the more distant you probably are from Jesus. Because this is what I want is not really the Jesus follower way. 
to think primarily of ourselves. I mean, we follow somebody who sets the example when he prays in the Garden of Gethsemane, not my will, but yours, or when he empties himself of all of his prerogatives. That's in Philippians 2. And it gets back to what we were talking about last week. Our focus on making ourselves happy, our focus on only doing what we want to do, living in grace with no responsibilities, that will not make us happy. Because we're not set free from our past. We're not given a fresh start to do anything we want to do. We're set free to follow Jesus into being into what will be the most fulfilling life we can imagine. And it's characterized by a number of things. And these things are described in the Ten Commandments. These things are described in the law, which Jesus boils down to love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. These are the things that characterize the kingdom of God. Loving God, loving other people, following the Ten Commandments. Those are just the things that the Holy Spirit brings about inside of us. But the law also shows that we need grace. Pick the Ten Commandments. I think this is great. Pick a commandment and just start doing that. Within 24 hours, you will recognize that you need grace to be able to do that. We have to try, but we also can fall back on the help that God gives, the grace that God gives, the Holy Spirit, the encouragement that we receive from people in the community of faith. Jesus raises up changed lives because it's a reflection of who God is, and that's what people see. I think he also raises up changed lives because it points out that a lot of times we don't understand God's forgiveness. Now, we revel in being forgiven, and God's posture is to forgive. God goes to an awful lot of trouble to provide forgiveness for us. But I think we need to remember, and hang with me here for a minute, that God's forgiveness is conditional. Absolutely, God's forgiveness is conditional. You don't get it for free. God's forgiveness is conditional on repentance. That's how you get forgiveness. You don't get forgiveness because you're sorry. Repentance isn't feeling bad. Repentance is about changing. Repentance and forgiveness go hand in hand. True repentance is shown by a changed life. That's why Jesus teaches us to pray, forgive us as we have forgiven other people. Because our ability to forgive is tied into the fact that we've been forgiven. And if we can't forgive, maybe we've never been forgiven. If we never repent, we've never actually been able to truly receive God's forgiveness. And that's worth thinking about for a while. It might be why Jesus says in Matthew chapter 25 that one day a bunch of people are gonna say to him, Lord, Lord, and he'll say, I never even knew who you were. Following Jesus results in changed lives, results in the fruit of the Spirit, results in us honoring our parents and caring for one another. I think that's why James writes so explicitly, faith without works is dead. There is no faith there if there nothing about you has been changed. An encounter with Jesus, receiving the grace of God, transforms us. It gives us a new identity. It makes us good. The idea of repentance and a change of heart and action raises one of the challenges to the church though. On so many levels and in so many surveys, people inside the church don't seem to be any different from people outside the church. 
And I think it's because maybe we've just picked up a few legalistic behaviors, or maybe we've adhered to certain cultural norms, but we've never really given our lives to Jesus fully or fully received his grace and forgiveness and have never really lived obediently as Jesus' disciples. And Jesus kind of sums this up and that problem with this warning. For I tell you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, you will certainly not enter the kingdom of, God, of heaven. What Jesus is saying is, if you choose not to live by grace, if you're just gonna try and be good, unless you've learned to live by grace, unless your life is characterized by obedience to following Jesus, you better be the most righteous person on the planet. And that actually is the third nonsensical statement Jesus makes. Salt doesn't lose its saltiness. You don't place a lamp underneath a basket and nobody can be righteous enough. So let me ask you three questions. How is the identity God gives you different from the way you view yourself? Number two, what is one way you can bring some salt and light to your sphere of influence this week? Number three, if you were to point to one thing in your life as an example of how you've been changed by following Jesus, what would it be? Hi, thanks for watching. The people of Harbor Covenant Church really want you to know the love that God has for you, want to grow with you in faith, and want to serve alongside you, not only to help others do the same, but also to make our families and our communities better. If that sounds like something that you can get on board with, then like, follow, and drop us a comment in the video. Watch some more videos on our channel or come visit us on Sunday. You can find out more about Harbor Covenant Church at harborcove.church.